We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Episode 326 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Wednesday, June 1st, 2022. A new month is upon us. And this Wednesday, June 1st, was supposed to be a big day for the Commanders. And actually, this may well still be a big day for the Commanders, but now for a different reason. So the vote is off. Uh, There will be no vote at least not now. Uh, It was on Wednesday, June 1st, that the Virginia State Senate, in a special session of the Virginia General Assembly, was to potentially vote on a stadium funding plan for the commanders in Virginia. However, we on Tuesday afternoon got word that there will not be a vote on Wednesday, but also that the session, which was potentially the final session for the Virginia legislature this season, will not be the final session for the Virginia legislature this season. So there later this month could be the vote on the stadium funding plan for the commanders in Virginia. Uh, By the way, to point out how absurd pretty much everything is with the commanders these days, the attorney general of Virginia is investigating the commanders for their alleged financial impropriety. It's not just Congress investigating the commanders in the financial scandal. We also have the Virginia attorney general investigating the commanders in the financial scandal. So we ultimately could have Virginia lawmakers voting on a stadium funding plan for a team in the commanders that the state attorney general is investigating for financial impropriety. How bonkers is that? But also on Tuesday was football news for the commanders. Yes, football news. Uh, Chase Young and Montez Sweat were in attendance at the commander's OTA practice on Tuesday. The prodigal sons, the prodigal edge defenders have returned. Uh, The commanders on Tuesday began their second of three sets of OTA practices this offseason, and Chase and Montez were the two prominent no-shows at last year's OTA practices for the team, missed all of last week's commander's OTA practices, but attended Tuesday's OTA practice. 
Wednesday's OTA practice will be open to the media. There's a belief that Chase and maybe even Montez will be speaking to reporters on Wednesday. Others with the team are expected to speak to reporters as well. So we should have a good bit going on with the commanders from a football standpoint on Wednesday. I will, of course, cover the major happenings on Thursday's installment of the Al Galdi podcast. But in the meantime, we have this Wednesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast to conduct. Next segment, I will address why Chase Young and Montez Sweat attending Commander's OTA practices this offseason matters, and thus why Tuesday's news was good news. Uh, Also, wait till you hear exactly how Tuesday's news was revealed. Uh, That, to me, is a key part of all of this. Uh, I have a special guest for you on the show, Mike Lewis. Uh, Mike Lewis is a marketing professor at Emory University. He is the host of the Fanalytics with Mike Lewis podcast. Mike recently came out with his 2022 NFL fandom rankings. Uh, These have gotten some attention. The fandom rankings, a ranking of NFL fan bases based on data and analytics. And guess where the commander's fan base came in? Uh, Yeah, dead last. Number 32 in the NFL. Now, that, of course, is far more of a reflection of what we as commander's fans have had to put up with then that ranking is a reflection of how good we are as fans. But I will discuss with Mike that number 32 ranking, what it's about, what it says, and how it perhaps can be improved. Uh, The state of the commander's fan base is relevant right now, given all of this stadium stuff. And the commander's quest for a new stadium seemingly is going nowhere right now. You know, we have what's going on in Virginia. Maryland is a factor, although not to some extreme extent. Washington, D.C. has seemed completely out of it. Although, did you see what the Washington Post reported on Tuesday evening? The Post on Tuesday evening reported that, according to Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton, a disagreement between D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser and D.C. Council Chairman Phil Mendelssohn, quote, has for months prevented the introduction of a bill in Congress that would allow the city to buy and develop the abandoned RFK stadium space, end quote. As you likely know, the biggest obstacle to the commander's next stadium being where so many want the stadium to be, the RFK stadium site in D.C., has been that the federal government, not the city of D.C., owns the RFK Stadium land. Well, here we have a potential fix, right? D.C. buying the federally owned RFK Stadium land via this bill. But the bill isn't being introduced to Congress because Bowser and Mendelssohn, both of whom are Democrats, by the way, so in theory they should be getting along, aren't getting along. A quote, Norton said in an interview that she will not introduce legislation until Bowser and Mendelssohn can reach an agreement, noting that they appear to disagree on how to use the land and whether to try to attract the Washington commanders to the stadium square. I'm stuck on stupid here. I cannot move until they move, she said of D.C. leaders. It would be in their best interest to move now while we have control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency End quote. Uh, Do not ignore the timing of this Washington Post report coming out. We on Tuesday afternoon had the news that the Virginia State Senate would not be voting on the Commander Stadium funding plan. And then magically, we on Tuesday evening had this report 
regarding what's going on truly with the RFK Stadium land in Washington, D.C. That, to me, is not a coincidence. Perhaps this is D.C. trying to make a move in this Commander Stadium saga. But what have I said about Washington, D.C. in this Commander Stadium situation? What I have said is that nothing is easy with D.C., okay? Nothing. D.C. makes things as difficult and as complicated as possible. And here we are again with Bowser and Mendelssohn not getting along. Uh, There was some good news on Tuesday in the Commander Stadium saga. Commander's insider Michael Phillips of Richmond.com. He was a guest on this podcast just last Friday, episode 324. Michael on Tuesday afternoon reported that the plan for the new Commander Stadium, wherever it ends up being, is for the stadium to have an estimated 55,000 seats. That would make the stadium the smallest stadium in the NFL in terms of capacity and would make the stadium slightly smaller in terms of capacity than RFK Stadium was. But I tell you, I like that. Uh, don't try to outdo Jerry World. Don't try to outdo AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas. Smaller can be better. More intimate can be better. And specific to the commanders in their current situation, a smaller capacity makes tickets more scarce and thus more special. And that's good for business. You know, it's odd. On the one hand, there's a lot of news right now in the commander stadium situation. But on the other hand, (laughs) the situation is going nowhere. The team still has no deal for a new stadium and may not have a deal for a new stadium anytime soon. We'll see. Uh, But more and more, I think that the commanders should consider like hitting pause on the stadium search, you know, like walking away from the stadium search for a while, just like put it off to the side and restart the search in say a year or two when things might be better for the team and the team might be winning and attendance maybe is better and television ratings might be better because right now there just is so little momentum for a new commander stadium in Virginia, Maryland or Washington, D.C. One thing that the commanders do have working in their favor is that they own their current stadium, the oh-so-wonderful FedEx Field. So it's not like the commanders have to be out of FedEx Field when the lease expires in September 2027. The commanders can play at FedEx Field for another year or two beyond the end of the lease, if doing so means getting this new stadium right. And That is, of course, of extreme importance, getting the new stadium right, unlike the current stadium, which was not done right. So yeah, just step off to the side for a while. Step off. If you remember the Seinfeld episode with Dan Cortez, step off, George. Just step off. Step off, George. I don't want to see you. Me? Step off? Yeah. Tony says you better step off, George. Oh, Tony, don't. Okay. (laughs) Step off, George, okay? Can you just step off? I I just... Step off. Step off. Step off. Yeah, just step off. Uh, That, to me, is what the commanders need to at least be considering doing in their stadium search. Stepping off for a while. Uh, Also, on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast, I'll talk baseball, I'll talk Nationals and Orioles. Each team on Tuesday night lost by the exact same score, 10-0. Oh, the symmetry. Uh, The Nats got smashed at the National League East leading New York Mets at 10-0 as Patrick Corbin got ripped yet again. There actually was a lot of Nats news on Tuesday afternoon. I'll get into that. The O's on Tuesday night got stomped 
by the Seattle Mariners at Oriole Park at Camden Yards at 10 at nothing. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Eric from Weedman on Chase Young and Montez Sweat having not attended Last week's Commander's OTA practices, writes Eric, I have listened patiently with understanding and with the milk of human kindness in my veins. However, I cannot buy the absence of Chase Young and Montez Sweat to the voluntary workouts. It was a big story last year, and both of these players know full well what is at stake. They both underperformed last year, and they know it. Whatever special Latida doctor treatments Chase has been receiving can easily be transported to our area. What is Logan Thomas doing? Is he at a special resort being pampered with his injury recovery? Sorry, it is further unfortunate proof of a certain tone-deaf diva attitude. It challenges the leadership of the coach and is not good for the team. Uh, Thank you for the email, Eric. You're not alone in how you feel. Uh, The good news is that both Chase Young and Montez Sweat were at the Commander's OTA practice on Tuesday. We'll see if that is, again, the case on Wednesday. Uh, This week is week two of three weeks of OTA practices for the Commanders this offseason. If Chase and Montez end up being in attendance for weeks two and three of the OTA practices, then I think that most people can live with that. But if they only come to this week's OTA practices, or even worse, only attend some of this week's OTA practices, and then wind up not attending any more OTA practices this offseason, then that's a not-so-good look. Uh, Much more on all of this coming up. Next segment, uh, email from Rich on Commander's OTA practices. Writes Rich, I've been listening to the various OTA news for a while. Chase Young had to make his money. Terry McLaurin is protecting himself until he gets some more cheddar. Uh, Jack Del Rio says failure to comply last year was a reason for his subpar defense. My question is, who in the world would choose this kind of a situation? Optional. Ron Rivera last week said that Cam Sims was excused from attendance. Why do you need to be excused from an optional activity? Why are optional activities critical? Players have put themselves in a position from which they can't win. Show up or get blamed and ridiculed in the press. Teams preach the importance of OTAs relentlessly. There's no option except for compliance. Parse out what's critical and necessary. Make OTAs mandatory. Uh, Thank you for the email, Rich. Uh, Yeah, so understand this about OTAs. What we now have with each NFL team being allowed 10 days of OTA practices each offseason was a, quote, concession, end quote, that was made by the NFL to the NFL Players Association in the collective bargaining that resulted in the 2011 collective bargaining agreement. Uh, Basically, every CBA battle between the NFL and the NFLPA over the years has resulted in the NFL whooping up on the NFLPA. That the NFL still does not have to dish out fully guaranteed contracts to players is hysterical to me. The NFL is by far the most popular pro sports league in this country. The NFL's national television contracts blow out of the water the national television contracts for MLB, the NBA, and the NHL. And yet, NFL player contracts are not all fully guaranteed the way that all MLB, NBA, and NHL player contracts are. I mean, think about that. So the NFL in 2011, in order to make the NFLPA feel like it won something and gained some ground, reduced the number of OTA practices 
per team per offseason from 14 to 10. Okay, fine. Whoop-de-doo. Big gain for the players, you know? That changes everything, you know? Norma Ray would be proud. Remember, we in 2011 had a lockout. Those CBA negotiations were contentious, and yet still, (laughs) the NFL whooped up on the NFL PA. Remember, the NFL in that 2011 go-round of CBA negotiations ended up getting the installation of the rookie wage scale. That was massive. The rookie wage scale has changed so much in the NFL, and a principal concession (laughs) that was made by the NFL was reducing the number of OTA practices per team per offseason from 14 to 10. Wow, what a sacrifice by the NFL. Uh, And yeah, making all of this even more comical (laughs) is that the players are put in a no-win situation with these OTA practices being voluntary. Because guys who choose not to attend the OTA practices become known, and then no-showing can very much become a thing. Well, if only the NFLPA had a savvy negotiator and reader of the landscape like Kellen Hunt. Luckily for you, you have access to Kellen Hunt. If you are wanting to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, do not waste your time with someone who doesn't know what he or she is talking about Get with Kellen Hunt. If you are on the hunt for a home in the ultra-competitive D.C. real estate market, visit CloseItWithKell.com. That's CloseItWithKell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs, and make sure that you tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. The D.C. area is a great area, but that also means that buying a home in the D.C. area is competitive. Homes in the D.C. area are going under contract quickly, After those homes are listed, if you are wanting to buy a home in the D.C. area, you need a savvy realtor to ensure that your offer is the offer that wins. This is where Kellen Hunt comes in. Kellen Hunt understands the D.C. area real estate market, and he is here for you to listen to you, to listen to what you want no matter your situation in life. Whether you're a first-time buyer looking for guidance or you have a young family looking For a bigger home or you're ready to retire and or are looking to downsize, Kellen Hunt can help you. Kellen Hunt is a real estate agent for real people, and he will listen to you. He's not just some know-it-all. He works for you. He takes in what you're looking for, and then he gets to work. Smart, attention to detail, creative. Put Kellen Hunt to work for you. And Kellen Hunt is so confident in what he does, he is willing to put a portion of his commission back in your pocket. Yes, you the buyer get a piece of the action. Kellen Hunt knows what buyers like you are facing and he wants to help. So here's what you do. Go to closeitwithkell.com. That's closeitwithkell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. You have nothing to lose. Visit closeitwithkell.com. Book an introductory call with Kellen Hunt at CloseItWithKell.com. If you are trying to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well by going with Kell. Visit CloseItWithKell.com and tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. All right, so beginning on Tuesday was the commander's second batch of organized team activity practices, OTA practices this offseason. The three sets of commander's OTA practices this offseason are May 23rd through the 26th, May 31st through June 2nd, and June 6th through June 8th. 
Uh, one commander's OTA practice per week is open to the media, and the commander's OTA practice that is open to the media this week is Wednesday's practice. So expect plenty of post-practice press conferences on Wednesday and a lot of commander's content on Thursday's installment of the Al Galdi podcast, what will be episode 327. Now, we on Tuesday morning learned that the commander's top two edge defenders, Chase Young and Montez Sweat, were in attendance at Tuesday's OTA practice. Uh, This off each guy having not attended last week's OTA practices. Uh, Chase last week was in Colorado rehabbing his right knee off the torn right ACL that he suffered in the win over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field this past November 14th. Montez last week was out due to a personal matter. Uh, The head coach of the commanders, Ron Rivera, uh, he during his post-OTA practice press conference on May 24th said that Montez was dealing with a personal thing and was expected to be in attendance the following Wednesday. In other words, the next day. But uh, Montez was not in attendance last Wednesday or last Thursday. So a few things off Chase Young and Montez Sweat being in attendance at the Commander's OTA practice on Tuesday. First of all, I get that this is becoming kind of a fatigued topic, okay? Feels like this has come up a lot the last two off-seasons now, and I get it, I do. But this is significant. And I know that there are some who completely dismiss any relevance whatsoever to who does and doesn't attend OTA practices. And if you're one of those people, fine, okay? I also know that there are some people who believe that bringing up whether Chase Young and Montez Sweat are attending voluntary OTA practices is picking on Chase and Montez and or disrespecting Chase and Montez and or hating on Chase and Montez. And hey, if you feel that way, more power to you, man, okay? I would just tell you this. You're wrong, okay? You're incorrect. Wanting greatness, wanting excellence from two guys as gifted as Chase Young and Montez Sweat are isn't picking on them or disrespecting them or hating on them. In fact, the opposite is the case. Holding guys like Chase Young and Montez Sweat to a high standard is a credit to them. That's a credit to how talented they are. You know, we see greatness within them and we want them to realize that greatness. We see excellence in them and we want them to realize that excellence. Uh, No reasonable person believes that these OTA practices are life and death, okay? Nobody's saying that. And everyone understands that these OTA practices technically are voluntary, okay? These players don't have to be at these OTA practices. But in life, just because you're allowed not to do something doesn't mean that you shouldn't do that something. How many of you listing right now routinely go above and beyond what you're supposed to do at your work, okay? Why? Because you care about what you do. You're allowed to not go above and beyond, but you choose to go above and beyond. You are committed to your craft. There's nothing wrong with that. You should take pride in that. And here's another thing, too. In the NFL, not every OTA practice absence should be viewed the same way. I do not view Terry McLaurin having no-showed commander's OTA practices so far this offseason, the same way that I viewed Chase Young and Montez Sweat having not attended commander's OTA practices last week. Terry McLaurin has earned a benefit of the doubt that neither Chase Young nor Montez Sweat has earned. Chase Young and Montez Sweat last offseason were the two most notable no-shows at Washington OTA practices. And keep in mind that Washington last offseason only held two sets 
of OTA practices. Normally, an NFL team in an offseason has three sets of OTA practices. Washington last offseason only had two sets of OTA practices, May 25th through the 27th and June 1st through the 3rd. Uh, Ron Rivera last offseason canceled Washington's third batch of OTA practices. I do wonder if Ron regrets that, but uh, Chase Young last offseason did not attend any of Washington's OTA practices. Montez Sweat last offseason attended only the second and final week of Washington's OTA practices. Now, Ron Rivera last season made it very clear that both Chase Young and Montez Sweat underperformed and were guilty of not always playing in accordance with the defensive scheme. Uh, Ron late last season made it clear that it was important for players to attend OTAs in the 2022 offseason. Ron Rivera at his day after the game Zoom press conference this past January 3rd, quote, one thing that we have to understand is just how important the offseason is for us. Hopefully the COVID situation will be in control. Hopefully it won't be a battle to get guys to be here, end quote. And Chase Young at his season-ending Zoom press conference this past January 10th, was very noncommittal about potentially attending OTAs in the 2022 offseason. So it is significant whether Chase Young and Montez Sweat are at Commander's OTA practices this offseason. Now, remember, the Commander's offseason program includes far more than just the OTA practices. The Commander's 2022 offseason program began on April 18th, and we'll go through the team's mandatory minicamp which will take place June 14th through the 16th. So the offseason program essentially is two months long. Uh, Everything except the mandatory minicamp is voluntary. We know that Chase had attended at least some of the pre-OTA practice portion of the Commander's 2022 offseason program. So it's not like Chase had skipped everything this offseason, but off what went down with Chase and Montez last season and how Ron clearly was not happy without Chase and Montez played last season, and that Ron very much wanted Chase and Montez in attendance at, you would think, especially Commander's OTA practices this offseason. Chase and Montez not attending Commander's OTA practices last week was a thing. And here's how I can tell you with certainty that Chase Young and Montez Sweat not attending Commander's OTA practices last week was a thing. Do you know how we on Tuesday morning learned that Chase and Montez were attending the Commander's OTA practice on Tuesday? The Commander's told us. Yeah. The team itself made it a point to tell reporters that Chase and Montez were in attendance at the team's OTA practice on Tuesday. The team itself made it a point to tell reporters that Chase and Montez were in the house at the Commander's OTA practice on Tuesday. You know, NFL teams don't usually put out who is and isn't in attendance at OTA practices. Uh, Teams sometimes put that information out there, but this isn't like how teams in regular seasons put out practice reports. Uh, No, these OTA practices are voluntary, and teams usually aren't publicizing who is and isn't in attendance. And yet, and yet... The commanders on Tuesday morning made it a point to tell reporters that Chase Young and Montez Sweat were attending the commander's OTA practice on Tuesday. That, to me, is very notable. You know, in this offseason, prior to which Ron Rivera made such a big deal about wanting players to attend OTAs, and in this offseason, that is prior to a season that Ron has said needs to be a step-forward season for the team, 
that the team's two most prominent no-shows at OTA practices last offseason were initially no-shows at OTA practices this offseason was not a good look, okay? And did not speak well for those players respecting Ron Rivera, you know, respecting Ron's authority. Uh, And yes, it is true that Chase Young is limited with what he can do right now as he comes back from the torn right ACL. But that doesn't mean that he can't benefit from being at these OTA practices, you know? This doesn't mean that Chase can't benefit from being with his coaches and being with his teammates. Who knows what Chase might pick up or learn? Who knows what greater understanding or comprehension of the commander's defensive scheme that Chase might arrive at? Who knows how much Chase being in attendance might get Rod Rivera to better understand Chase as a player and as a guy? We have no idea. I know this. There's no harm in being in attendance at OTA practices for your NFL team, especially when there are only 10 of these OTA practices per offseason. I mean, that's it. 10. Okay. This is three weeks out of your offseason. And this isn't even three weeks. This is three or four days per week for three weeks. That's it. These OTA practices are not padded practices. They're really not that big of an ask. So this to me was good news from the commanders themselves. Don't forget that. Uh, On Tuesday morning, that both Chase Young and Montez Sweat were in attendance at Tuesday's OTA practice, and hopefully Chase and Montez will be in attendance at most or all of the rest of the commander's OTA practices this offseason. You know, it's quite possible that we'll hear from both Chase and Montez on Wednesday. I hope that we hear from both guys on Wednesday. And, you know, maybe them missing commander's OTA practices last week was perfectly valid, you know, and each guy had a great reason. We don't know. And I readily admit that there may well be information here that we do not have. But here to me is what matters the most, that Chase Young, Montez Sweat, Ron Rivera, and our commander's defensive coordinator, Jack Del Rio, aka Bite D's, uh, are all on the same page, okay? Because they weren't all on the same page last season. That's as clear as can be. Washington's defense in the 2021 regular season was a major disappointment. Everybody knows that. Chase Young and Montez Sweat in the 2021 regular season were disappointments. Chase more so than Montez. And don't ever forget this. Washington's defense in the 2021 regular season played its best football while Montez Sweat and Chase Young were out. This is the most stunning reality about Washington's 2021 regular season. Washington's defense played really well during a five-game stretch that went from week 10 through week 14. That five-game stretch included a four-game winning streak. Montez Sweat missed all of those games. Chase Young missed all but about a half of one of those games. He suffered that season-ending torn right ACL in the win over the Bucks at FedEx Field in week 10. Saying that Chase Young and Montez Sweat not attending Commander's OTA practices last week was significant, wasn't being overly harsh or overly critical, okay? Saying that was recognizing that in these specific cases of Chase and Montez this offseason, whether they attended OTA practices mattered. Not because the OTA practices are life and death, but because the OTA practices are an indicator of whether something that wasn't the case last season, now will be the case for this coming season. Chase Young, Montez Sweat, Rod Rivera, and Jack Del Rio all being on the same page. 
Up next, I'll discuss the state of the commander's fan base with Mike Lewis, who is a marketing professor at Emory University and is the host of the Fanalytics with Mike Lewis podcast. Mike recently came out with his 2022 NFL fandom rankings, which is a ranking of fan bases based on data and analytics. The commander's fan base came in number 32, dead last in the NFL. We'll discuss why and what can be done to change that straight ahead. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Well, this episode of the Al Galdi podcast is for Wednesday, June 1st. What was supposed to be a big day in the Commander Stadium saga as it relates to Virginia. It was on this day that we, in a special session of the Virginia General Assembly, which is comprised of the Virginia House of Delegates and the Senate of Virginia, were to potentially have a vote among Virginia state senators on a stadium funding plan for the commanders in Virginia. However, We on Tuesday afternoon got word that the stadium funding plan for the commanders in Virginia will not be voted on on Wednesday and that the session, which was potentially the final session for the Virginia legislature this season, it will not be the final session for the Virginia legislature this season. What do you know? Politicians kicking a can down the road. When does that ever happen? Uh, Actually, I do think that this is smart. Uh, More time is needed for both the state of Virginia and the commanders to figure out a plan 
that could work for both sides. As I said earlier in the show, the more that I think about the stalled state of the Commander Stadium search, the more that I think that the team should just pause the stadium search, okay? And resume the search in like a year or two when things might be better for the team in terms of attendance and television ratings and merchandise sales and the team might have more leverage because right now it feels like the team has so little leverage with Virginia, Maryland, and Washington, D.C. Of course, what's very much suggested by Virginia lawmakers delaying the stadium funding plan vote is this. There weren't enough votes for the stadium funding plan to make it out of the Virginia State Senate. As you likely know, support in the Virginia State Senate for a commander stadium funding plan seemingly has lessened quite a bit, uh, given a number of Virginia State senators who have come out and said that they are against the commander stadium funding plan. The most prominent Virginia State senator who has come out against the stadium funding plan is Chap Peterson, who is a Democrat who represents Central and Western Fairfax. Uh, Chap Peterson, in a statement that came out last Wednesday night, said that he doesn't have confidence in the Commanders, quote, as a viable NFL franchise, end quote, and said that he doesn't think that the Commanders, quote, have the community support to survive, end quote. Uh, those quotes from Chap Peterson, whether you agree with them or not, really stood out, right? And the quotes got me to thinking, where are we as a fan base for the commanders? Like, how is it that a local politician can say what Chap Peterson said in that statement? And you, at the very least, can argue that there's some validity to what he's saying. Well, I'm very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now a special guest, Mike Lewis, a marketing professor at Emory University. He is the host of the Fanalytics with Mike Lewis podcast. You can follow Mike on Twitter at sport underscore analytic. Uh, Mike recently came out with his 2022 NFL fandom rankings, which is a ranking of fan bases based on data and analytics. You can check out the full rankings at fandomanalytics.com. The number one fan base, the Green Bay Packers fan base. The number two fan base, the New England Patriots fan base. The number three fan base, the Dallas Cowboys fan base. The number four fan base, the Philadelphia Eagles fan base. The number five fan base, the Pittsburgh Steelers fan base. And wouldn't you know it, the Commanders fan base came in dead last. Yes, number 32 out of 32 NFL fan bases. Mike, it's very nice to have you on. How are you? I'm doing great, and uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. I appreciate you coming on. Before we get to the Commanders fan base, how did you go about computing the 2022 NFL fandom rankings? Okay, so, you know, the, the backstory on this is that, you know, I, I kind of view this as a classic, almost barroom conversation debate of who's actually the best fans. And, you know, as a marketing guy, it, it, I'm a marketing professor by trade with a background in statistics and optimization. We spent a lot of time quantifying the value of brands and looking at customer loyalty. So this was an effort to take those concepts, so the concept of brand equity from marketing, bringing in a bunch of data from all different sources, estimating economic models of how the league works. And that's kind of the key to what's going on here is building an economic model of how things like revenue or social media works across the league. And then the way the rankings work is I look at how each team performs based on how the league works on average for teams that win the same number of games, have the same number of people living in their market, um, make the same amount of money. 
Okay, so the fandom rankings aren't based on gut or feel. The fandom rankings are based on an objective methodology. The numbers are speaking the truth, (laughs) as the numbers understand the truth. Okay, I just wanted to emphasize that. So the Commanders fan base is last in the 2022 NFL fandom rankings. Look, uh, nobody listening to this is surprised by that. Uh, Why is the Commanders fan base last in the rankings? What do the numbers tell us? Well, I'm focusing mostly on a, on a couple of things. And there's a lot that goes into the rankings, but the two biggest parts are how the teams perform in terms of box office revenue and how they perform in social media. And, and I think probably to your listeners, if they're Washington football team fans, or Commanders fans, that they know that that stadium has dropped off incredibly in terms of attendance. Uh, I started doing these rankings eight years ago, and at that time – the Redskins at that time were one of the, if not a top five fan base in the NFL, they were very close to, it. you know, when they, when they built that new stadium, I want to say they built that new stadium with 90 plus thousand people. And since then they've continually taken seats out, covered seats up where, let me, let me grab the actual number. The, Attendance last year listed by ESPN for the Washington football team was 52,751 per game, which is dead last in the league. Yeah, the Commander Stadium situation is the worst stadium situation in the NFL. Regarding the team going with this new name in Commanders, how do you see that new name, that rebrand impacting the fan base? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna sound like a professor here for a, for a second, but it is one of the most botched decisions I think I've ever seen. I've ever seen done. I've I've actually been writing and researching on name changes, moving away from Native American um, imagery for for a number of years. The Washington Football Team has. I, I, I think the consensus out there is at this point, it's it's almost like the team is starting off as an expansion team with a name that people don't actually like and who has actually alienated the local fan base. It is, you know, the, it's hard to lose in the NFL given the revenue sharing, but it is a complete marketing disaster. Wow. What should the team have done differently? Frankly, if it was me, I would have stuck with Washington football team. And that's actually almost an interesting little aside in, in all this, right? They went with Washington football team as a placeholder you know, that was at least novel, has some like echoes of European soccer. It's something different. But then when they went into the process of then hiring consultants, it's almost like they excluded the one name that potentially would have worked. And so moving to something like, look, I think the survey data is clear. The commanders feels, it's almost more like a USFL or an XFL kind of name in terms of how it's resonated with the fan base. So I think they had, they sort of wandered into something and then they drew an X through that and went on to something worse. Well, you're not alone in thinking that Washington football team should have been the permanent name. I was never among those people. Uh, I was fine with Washington football team as a placeholder name, but to me, Washington football team isn't a name and the team would have become the team with no name. And I felt that the team needed to pick an actual new name. I know that the team president, Jason Wright, ultimately felt that way as well. But you do think that going with Washington football team as the permanent name would have been better than going with commanders. It's, I, I get where you're coming from, but you know, one of the things that we got to realize is that 
let's say the, the landscape of sports fandom is changing rapidly and I suspect soccer is going to be the number three sport here in a couple of years. And when you look at what European soccer clubs have done over time, you see a lot of, you know, Washington FC type names or Washington football teams. And so it it was something different, but it did have a little bit of a unique, you know, it, it was sort of generic, but it did have something unique about it. And there was something, I don't kind of, kind of forward looking as well. But but I, I, I'm with you. It's it, they put themselves in a really tough place. Name changes are always difficult, and so I think these are always a compromise of kind of the best of kind of bad options. We're talking about the Commanders fan base with Mike Lewis, a marketing professor at Emory University. He is the host of the Fanalytics with Mike Lewis podcast. When it comes to a name change, something as grand as a professional sports team changing the name of itself, what's the key to that working? Well, to be to be blunt, the key to these successful name changes is you got to do it when the team's winning. You know, you got to find some success on the field because if if you have success on the field, the fans are going to keep showing up at the moment of the name change, and there's nothing more powerful than having you know butts and seats, winning championships, and then suddenly a name that's coming out of the blue, suddenly that feels like something that I've loved for a long time. And so, look, you get this more than I do living in the market, that they've got a scandal and defeats coming one after another, and so you lay a name change on top of that. And you can't help but alienate the, you know, you can't help but alienate the existing fan base. It's funny because there was the thought that with everything going wrong for the team, now was actually a good time for a name change and that the number of fans that the team would be alienating would be relatively low and that fans might see the name change as a new beginning, you know, a fresh start of all of the losing and all of the controversies. Well, I think you, you know, as, as a, I get that logic, but I think we have to think about who we are as fans. And when we're following, look, I grew up in Chicago in the 90s. If they had decided to change the name of the Bulls to the the Jordans in 1993, we would have all gone out and bought new jerseys, right? I mean, the the power of winning is something we we can't underestimate in terms of what, you know, what compels us to put these labels on, on ourselves. And, and that's that's a key part of the story, right? You're asking people to put this label, you know, to wear a, a commander's T-shirt or a Washington football team T-shirt. There's got to be a reason why I want to identify with that. The Washington football club has kind of missed that at the moment. When it comes to why the commander's fan base is such that it comes up dead last in your 2022 NFL fandom rankings, the state of the commander's fan base is about a lot of things. Uh, The team being mostly bad for the last three decades, the team having an owner in Dan Snyder, who has one of the lowest approval ratings in all of sports, the team having a stadium in FedEx Field that is universally despised. But with the owner, if Dan Snyder was ousted as owner of the team. Would that drastically improve the state of the fan base or not necessarily? I think it would be, you know, from when I, I'm away from analytics at the moment, but when I talk to Washington football fans, that is the constant that you hear from. I tend to think of there being two major segments, the the legacy Redskin fans and the up and coming millennials and Gen Zs that, you know, can't stand that name. But the unifying part of dislike does seem to boil down to Dan Schneider. So it's almost like that has to happen for this to, short of winning two, three Super Bowls in a row, 
that's probably the right move. What comes up a lot with the state of the fan base for the Commanders is that the bottom line is winning, and that if the team just wins more, then the attendance will pick up, and the merchandise sales will pick up, and there will be a wide acceptance of the name Commanders. Does all of this just come down to winning? It is about winning. The question will always be, how much winning do you need to do? So if the Commanders went out there on a run and won a single Super Bowl, does that bring them back to the 90 glory days? My my speculation is absolutely not. They go out there and they have a Tom Brady, Bill Belichick-like run for two decades. Yeah, we're all Commanders fans then. <laughs> Boy, a Bill Belichick-like run of success for the Commanders. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, while the team is trying to get back to having sustained success on the field, Is there anything that the team can do in the meantime to improve the state of the fan base? Jason Wright talks about upgrading the stadium experience for fans. The team is doing a lot more and is being creative on social media. Do these things matter or are these things just operating on the margins? That's a good word for it because in in sports, the marketing efforts are very much on the margins, right? They're going to improve things by a few percentage. Winning is going to improve things by enormous amounts. I think the other thing that the the other mistake that that team has made, and again, this is I'm not in the local market, so I'm sort of reading articles whenever they pop up and hit the national news, is that also sense that there's almost been a little bit of a war on the older fan base. I think I saw an article a few years ago where they were not going to let people into the stadiums if they were wearing the old logos. You know, they've got to figure, they've got to realize that. If you want to have a fan base, you've got to be a strong relationship partner, which means that you've got to find ways to embrace and be something that, you know, your 60-year-old fans that grew up with the old name don't feel attacked by. And I don't think they've succeeded at that. Yeah, the team hasn't formally banned the wearing of Redskins geared games, but there's no doubt that a lot of fans of the team feel alienated by the name change. Looking back on the team retiring the name Redskins in July 2020, uh, there obviously was a lot going on in the country in the summer of 2020, and Dan Snyder totally got put on the spot by FedEx to change the name. But looking back on everything, should Dan have fought harder to keep the name Redskins? And look, Dan did fight hard for the name for years, and it's easy now to say that he should have fought harder in the summer of 2020 when in the summer of 2020, there was this environment for change like maybe never before. But all of that said, should Dan have fought harder to keep the name Redskins? Okay, I I wrote an article called The Redskins Name is Bad Business that was actually in the Times as an op-ed in 2014. So I'm on record as saying that this is... This is a battle that they can't win. And at that time, my recommendation was you got to go away from the, the Redskins name because it's a fight you simply can't win. There, it, it will be a controversy every couple of years that gets more intense than less intense. They needed to figure out a way to sort of gracefully exit, say, look, when we formed the name, no malice was intended. There's a community that is, you know, built around this team that loves this team, but there's also cultural shifts, and this is no longer acceptable to some other folks. So we're going to move to something new. And if they had done that in an orderly process, you know, brought in some different stakeholders, kind of build up something, it still wouldn't have been great. But they could have done it in a much smoother fashion. To do it when they did it with, you know, riots in the streets. 
again, that that doing it at that instant, I think, was actually even kind of troubling as well. It was well, you're only going to do it when there's a complete crisis, and FedEx is telling you you're going to drop that they're going to drop this the the naming rights, these kind of things. Yeah, and the FedEx thing is a story in and of itself with the chairman, president, and chief executive officer of FedEx being Fred Smith, who was a minority owner with the Redskins at the time and who had a major falling out with Dan Snyder. Uh, If Dan called you up, if Dan called up Mike Lewis and said, hey, professor, help me out. Uh, What can I do to improve the state of my team's fan base while we try to get back to winning? What would you say to him? I would say, number one, you've got to figure out a way to win. And obviously, that's so much easier to say than to do in the NFL. But number two, you've got to figure out a way where you can actually be part of a community in that D.C. area. That And look, in the short term, they're not going to love whatever whatever Dan Schneider ends up doing. But you've got to figure out a way to get to the point where they don't hate everything that you say. And yeah, that's a tough, especially I think, you know, I don't know the man, but with his personality, you know, it seems like he's the kind of guy that feels pushed into a corner, but he's got to figure out a way to put other people out front, you know, whoever the local, the local loved former Redskins players are, you know, you've got to build that community. And I think his, the issue is you've got to realize that things are completely damaged and so this is building not even just from you know the ground up, it's recovery type stuff. And so it, it's a multi-year kind of thing with massive investments, anything that you can do to win on the field. Final question, with Washington having done so poorly in home attendance last season and with the team searching for a new stadium, what do you think is the future of attendance at NFL games? I mean, Staying at home and watching games on TV is more appealing than doing so has ever been. Uh, and this goes for all sports, given, you know, big screen TVs and how expensive and time consuming it is to go to games. The NFL's television revenue is unbelievable uh, and NFL ticket revenue, in theory, has never mattered less. What should be the outlook for NFL teams on attendance at NFL games moving forward? I think the NFL, look, I, I think all of sports is we're going to enter, we are in the midst and an accelerating era of fragmentation where, you know, for folks like me, I'm, I'm 54. I grew up in Chicago. We were fans of everything, Cubs, Bears, Bulls. Now I, I do a lot of research um, looking at how fandom is changing over time. And you just don't see that unified. You don't see sports acting as a unifier anymore. You see very different folks as NBA fans than as MLB fans. The NFL is by far, the, so while I'm saying is the fragmentation is just going to get worse, the NFL is in by far the best position because the NFL is still an event, right? It's For the most part, it's Sunday afternoon. It's all at the same time people can gather. Fantasy football is so enormous, and so you've, you've got this kind of community building thing where even, you know, your great aunt is interested in the Ravens defense, right? And, and so the NFL has so much work. And look, the NFL even has an offseason schedule where the, the draft beats the NBA playoffs, right? So the NFL is by far the strongest thing. I think we're going to see weakening across the board, but the NFL looks to be the last guy standing. 
Yeah, the NFL really is a behemoth. Uh, It is incredible. Mike Lewis, a marketing professor at Emory University, the host of the Fanalytics with Mike Lewis podcast. Mike, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Al. Appreciate it. Well, what has happened to the Nationals over the first two games of the Nats' three-game series at the National League East-leading New York Mets has not been pretty. Uh, The Nats so far in this series are getting wrecked big time by a Mets team that, at least right now, is running away with the NL East. Uh, Monday night, a 13-5 loss. Tuesday night, a 10-0 loss. So the Nats have gotten outscored over the first two games of this series at 23-5. Five. The Nats have gotten embarrassed over the first two games of this series, and the Nats this season now are a National League worst 18 and 33. Yes, the Nats now have the worst record in the National League. Uh, the Nats' record for this season now is worse than the record of the oh so lowly Cincinnati Reds. Uh, the Nats have the second worst run differential in the NL at minus 71. Uh, the Mets this season. Now we're 34 and 17. Look, the Nats as a rebuilding team are better off having as bad of a record as possible. Okay, like if you're going to be bad, you might as well be really bad. But geez, the Nats really are bad this season. Again, 18 and 33, worst record in the NL. And guess who got lit up on Tuesday night? Yes, you guessed it. Patrick Corbin. Oh, Corby was at it again on Tuesday night. Yet another hideous outing for him in his fall from grace. The Nats in December 2018 signed Corbin as a free agent to a six-year, $140 million contract. He, in the Nats' 2019 World Series championship season, was really good, including as a reliever that postseason. But he, ever since the 2019 World Series, has been awful. And Corbin, this season now, is even worse than he was in 2020 and 2021. And that, to me, is the takeaway of this latest wretched Patrick Corbin outing. Corbin on Tuesday night, seven runs in four and a third innings. He gave up a jaw-dropping 12 hits. Yes, 12 hits allowed over four and a third innings. Uh, He gave up a homer and 11 singles. He issued two walks, one of which was intentional. He threw one wild pitch. He did record six strikeouts, and he did throw a lot of strikes. Uh, Corbin threw 71 strikes versus just 35 balls, but you add those up, that comes out to 106 pitches over just four and a third innings. Uh, Corbin in the bottom of the first allowed two runs. He gave up a leadoff single to Mark Canna on a grounder that went past a lunging Alcides Escobar at the top of the infield dirt. Corbin gave up a two-run homer to Starling Marte to dead center field for a 2-0 Mets lead. Uh, the homer was some shot when it projected 431 feet per stat cast. Corbin issued a one-out seven-pitch walk of Pete Alonso, despite Alonso having been down in the count at 1.02. Corbin gave up a two-out full-count single to Jeff McNeil to left center field. Uh, Corbin in the bottom of the third allowed two runs on four singles. Corbin in a four-run Mets fifth was charged with three runs as he faced four batters and gave up three singles. Uh, here was Nats manager Davey Martinez during his postgame session with reporters late night on Tuesday night on Patrick Corbin. I mean, he, you know, he, 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 he threw the ball down. He just got, he got beat up by a bunch of singles. I mean, he really did. So, um, you know, uh, I, I think a couple, a couple misses with, with two strikes, you know, a couple, couple hits where I thought, you know, um, you know, we, 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 we a little better pitch maybe, but um, you know he's 
Look, he's throwing the ball. He's doing everything we're asking him to do, right? I mean, he's, he's throwing strikes. He's found the strike zone. Um, after the home run, you know, he, he's, he settled down. He was ahead of a bunch of hitters. Um, like I said, a couple of two-strike you know, hits, a couple broken bat hits. Um, next thing you know, he's you know he's giving up you know 14, 14 hits, you know four or five runs, and uh, but he, you know he battled, he battled, gave us you know gave us you know as much as he could, you know through a hundred pitches. Um, you know, after yesterday, we needed him to, to, to go out there, and, and um, he did that. So, um, you know, I, I, for me, I think we you know we got we got to do do a better job of just. You know, understanding what we need to do to get these hitters out. I really, I really do. So, this is something that we'll talk about tomorrow. Yeah, you talked a ton about him needing to be in the zone more. I mean, he has been, but he's also his whiff rates are like way down. So, are these the kind of nights that you might have to just swallow if he's going to be someone who's pitching a lot, throwing a lot of strikes in this point? Well, well, that's. I mean, there's, like I said, I mean, he, I, I felt like you know he was around the zone. He had you know some, some a lot of two strike counts. Um, could could have finished. You know, whether it was a you know you know a, a you know a ball that found you know found its way through the infield or, I mean, they didn't hit very many balls hard. You know, uh, had had a good day. You know, but. He stayed up the middle of the field, um, but you know, after the after a home run by Marte, which you know we fell behind, you know, and, and had to throw a strike. Um, I, you know, he, there was a, not many balls hit very hard. So um, I just you know I talked to him for a little minute and I said, "Hey, I thought you I thought you threw the ball well. You know, now we just got to you got to finish that at bats. I mean, that's that's the key." So yes, Patrick Corbin on Tuesday night did get babbipped to a degree, 11 singles. I mean, some of that is the variance of the batted ball, but a lot of that is giving up contact and not missing bats and not generating strikeouts. And when you do a deep dive on where exactly Patrick Corbin has gone wrong in this unraveling of his career over the last three seasons, what stands out more than anything is the extent to which he is no longer the strikeout pitcher he used to be. Patrick Corbin in his final season with the Arizona Diamondbacks, 2018, averaged 11.07 strikeouts per nine innings. Corbin in his first season with the Nats, 2019, averaged 10.6 strikeouts per nine innings. But his strikeouts per nine innings since 2019, 2020, 8.22, 2021, 7.5, and 2022 now, 7.95. The industry standard in 2022, basically, is you want to be averaging a strikeout per inning. Corbin is no longer doing that. And the fact that he's not missing bats like he used to miss bats has made him more prone to giving up contact, has made him more prone to the variance of the batted ball. And so we saw what we saw on Tuesday night. Again, him giving up 12 hits over four and a third innings. Uh, Patrick Corbin this season now, over 11 starts, has an ERA of 696 and a whip of 1.79. Those numbers are atrocious, okay? And understand, he is significantly worse than he was in either of the last two seasons when you look at his ERA. Corbin for the 2021 season, ERA of 582. Corbin for the 2020 season, ERA of 466. Again, his ERA for this season is 696, a full run plus worse than what his ERA for the 2021 season was. And keep in mind, Corbin finished the 2021 season with the worst ERA among all qualified pitchers in baseball. He is getting worse, not better. This idea that Corbin has bottomed out, uh, apparently he hasn't because the bottom keeps going lower and lower. 
Uh, the Nats' offense on Tuesday night was not good. Uh, the Nats scored no runs. Uh, <laughs> that tells you all you need to know. Uh, but the Nats on Tuesday night totaled just six hits, all of which were singles, worked three walks, went 0-2 with runners in scoring position. Uh, Nelson Cruz did not play due to a left ankle contusion that he suffered on Monday night on a one-out hit-by-pitch in the Nats' three-run first. Uh, Alcides Escobar left the game on Tuesday night with what looked like a pretty bad hamstring injury, although according to Escobar, what he dealt with was just a cramp. So he may be fine. We'll see. Uh, But Alcides Escobar on Tuesday night left the game after four innings, but just not much happening for the Nats offensively on Tuesday night. Juan Soto as the Nats starting right fielder and number three batter 0 for 3 with a walk. Josh Bell as an ad starting first baseman and number four batter, one for four with a single. Kbet Ruiz as an ad starting catcher and number two batter, 0 for three with a walk. Uh, Cesar Hernandez as an ad starting second baseman and number one batter, 0 for four. Yadiel Hernandez as an ad starting DH and number five batter, 0 for four. Uh, the biggest offensive bright spot for the Nats on Tuesday night, believe it or not, was D. Strange Gordon. Uh, D. Strange Gordon on Tuesday night was an ad starting left fielder and number seven batter. He eventually moved to shortstop when Alcides Escobar left the game. Uh, but D. Strange Gordon on Tuesday night, three for four with three singles and a stolen base. Uh, Strange Gordon in the top of the second had a two out first pitch single to right field and a stolen base off which he advanced to third base due to a throwing error by Mets first baseman Pete Alonso. Strange Gordon in the top of the fourth had a one out single on a line drive that went off the back of the Nats runner at first base, Michael Franco, who was automatically out. That's a bizarre rule that we have in Major League Baseball because there was like nothing that Michael Franco could do on that play. And he took quite a shot to his back. That was a well-struck ball by Strange Gordon, but Strange Gordon did get credit for a hit there. And then Strange Gordon in the top of the seventh had a leadoff single up the middle to conclude a 10-pitch plate appearance in which he fouled off five consecutive pitches. Uh, D. Strange Gordon this season now, over 54 plate appearances for the Nats, has both a batting average and an on-base percentage of 315. Uh, He has not drawn a single walk. Uh, He has just two extra base hits, a triple and a double, uh, but he is batting 315. The guy does make contact, and his speed is undeniable. You know, he makes things happen when he plays. He doesn't hit for power. He doesn't draw any walks, but he does make contact, and he is piling up some singles here. He is getting on base to a degree, so uh, I think D. Strange Gordon deserves some credit for that. Uh, Now, prior to the Nats, a 10-0 loss at the Mets on Tuesday night was a lot of Nats news, uh, all of which had to do with Nats pitching. So the Nats on Tuesday afternoon made slash announced a number of roster moves. Uh, the Nats designated reliever Austin Voth for assignment. Uh, he had really been struggling. The Nats option reliever Andres Machado to AAA Rochester. The Nats selected the contract of reliever Jordan Weems from AAA Rochester. The Nats recalled reliever Francisco Perez from AAA Rochester. And the Nats announced that starting pitcher Aaron Sanchez, who the team had designated for assignment late night this past Saturday night, has cleared outright waivers and has elected for free agency. Now, both Weems and Perez pitched on Tuesday night. The results were, shall we say, mixed. Uh, One guy was good, the other guy, not so much. Four Nats relievers on Tuesday night combined to allow three runs in three and two-thirds innings. Erasmo Ramirez in a Mets four-run fifth face four batters. He recorded two strikeouts, but he also gave up a one-out bases-loaded two-run double to the first batter he faced, Mark Canna, for a 6-0 Mets lead. And Ramirez gave up a two-out two-run single to Francisco Lindor 
for an 8-0 Mets lead. Francisco Perez in the bottom of the six allowed two runs on a homer and two singles. Uh, he gave up a one-out two-run homer to Eduardo Escobar to left field for a 10-0 Mets lead. Jordan Weems was the bright spot. Uh, Weems, in his Major League regular season debut for the Nats, tossed a perfect bottom of the seventh and against the Mets numbers two through four batters, Starling Marte, Francisco Lindor, and Pete Alonso. Uh, that was some job by Weems in the bottom of the seventh inning, albeit in garbage time. And Weems recorded back-to-back strikeouts of Lindor and Alonso. And then Steve Ciszek tossed a scoreless bottom of the eighth inning. But the Nats pitching depth is being tested here with Eric Fetty getting shellacked as he got shellacked in the 13-5 loss at the Mets on Monday night. And then Corbin getting shellacked as he got shellacked in this 10-0 loss at the Mets on Tuesday night. And so you're seeing some roster maneuvering here by the Nats. They need fresh bullpen arms with the lack of length from Nats starters over the first two games of this series at the Mets. And also with the Nats in the midst of this stretch here in which the Nats don't have any scheduled off days. Now, the Nats did get an off day this past Friday uh, with the rainout against the Colorado Rockies, but whatever benefit you gained from that was drastically lessened by the fact that the Nats had to play a doubleheader uh, this past Saturday. So yeah, I mean, this is a tough run here that the Nats are in the midst of. Uh, The Nats' next scheduled off day is this Monday, June 6th. Uh, And then you do have some off days in this month of June, but really not that many. Remember, we have a condensed schedule for Major League Baseball this season off the lockout this past offseason. Also for the Nats on Tuesday afternoon was some bad news, Uh, though this was not unexpected news, but this really is unfortunate. Uh, We on Tuesday afternoon learned that Joe Ross will be getting a second Tommy John surgery. Uh, This season, it was Ross's age 29 season and a contract season. This season is his final season of team control. So this was a big season for Joe Ross. And the timing of this second Tommy John surgery couldn't be much worse. I mean, he may not pitch at the major league level until 2024 now. We'll see. Uh, Ross now two Tuesday nights ago, May 24th, made his first minor league rehab assignment start of the season. He had a 6-4 home loss for the AA Harrisburg Senators to the Altoona Curb, tossed three scoreless innings with four strikeouts. He looked good in terms of the results, but the problem was his right elbow tightened up. He was supposed to throw four innings or 60 pitches. He ended up only throwing three innings and 31 pitches. He underwent testing, and it turns out that he will be undergoing a second Tommy John surgery. Now, this had been feared. If you remember, Joe Ross's 2021 season ended last August due to a partial tear of his right UCL. And the decision was made at the time to not undergo a second Tommy John surgery and to try to see if a second Tommy John surgery could be avoided. But then we got what we got this past March. Ross in March underwent arthroscopic surgery to remove a bone spur in his right elbow. So what wasn't accounted for, or at the very least, what ended up happening, which ended up creating what basically now is a nightmare scenario, is Ross, in resting the right UCL, ended up suffering another elbow injury, right? A bone spur in his right elbow, had to undergo arthroscopic surgery to remove that bone spur. That created this situation in which he was making a minor league rehab assignment start, and his elbow ended up tightening up to where now he's going to end up needing the Tommy John surgery anyway. So instead of undergoing this surgery last August, he's not going to undergo the surgery now until this month of June. So Joe Ross essentially ended up wasting 
10 months of his career, okay? And, and, and that's not anybody's fault, okay? I totally understand. You don't want to undergo that second Tommy John surgery. You want to do all that you can to avoid that second Tommy John surgery. But just the way that this ended up playing out was just that Joe Ross wasted 10 months of his career. Uh, and for Joe Ross now, you take a step back, man, has he struggled with injury and also inconsistency ever since a promising start to his time with the Nats at the major league level. Uh, Joe Ross was a good starting pitcher for the Nats in 2015 and 2016, but a lot has gone wrong for him ever since then. Uh, Ross in 2016 missed more than two months due to right shoulder inflammation. Ross in July 2017 underwent his first Tommy John surgery. Ross in September 2019 missed about three weeks due to forearm soreness. Ross spent a good chunk of July 2021 on the 10-day injured list due to right elbow inflammation. Ross's 2021 season ended in August 2021 due to a partial tear of his right UCL. And Ross, this past March, underwent the arthroscopic surgery to remove a bone spur in his right elbow. And now he will be undergoing a second Tommy John surgery. It's really too bad. Uh, game three for the Nats at the Mets is on Wednesday afternoon at 1.10, and the Nats starting pitcher will be Evan Lee. Who? What? Yes, Evan Lee. Uh, the Nats do not have a number five starter right now with Aaron Sanchez having been designated for assignment and Steven Strasburg still pitching at the minor league level on his minor league rehab assignment. By the way, Strasburg's next minor league rehab assignment start and perhaps his final minor league rehab assignment start will be this Friday night for AAA Rochester. And so the Nats needed someone to start this game three at the Mets on Wednesday afternoon, and that someone is going to end up being Evan Lee. Uh, Evan Lee is not some prime prospect for the Nats. He has been doing okay for Harrisburg this season, but, you know, he's not some, like, well-regarded guy who has been banging on the door to be called up to the major league level. Again, he had been pitching for AA Harrisburg, not for AAA Rochester. Uh, Lee this season for Harrisburg, seven starts, just 30 innings, an ERA of 360, a whip of 133. He has been a strikeout pitcher for Harrisburg. His strikeouts per nine innings this season is 11.1, but uh, expectations are probably low for Evan Lee on Wednesday afternoon. Although with the bar that has been set by Nat starting pitchers in this series, again, Eric Fetty struggling as he did in the 13-5 loss on Monday night, six runs in one and a third innings, and then Patrick Corbin struggling as he did in the 10-0 loss on Tuesday night, seven runs in four and a third innings. It's more than possible that Evan Lee on Wednesday afternoon ends up giving the Nats their best outing from a starting pitcher in this series. But so far, this series has been rather frightening from a Nats perspective. Again, the Nats outscored by the Mets over the first two games of this series, 23-5. Well, just as the Nationals lost 10-0 on Tuesday night, so too did the Orioles. Uh, the O's began an eight-game homestand with a 10-0 loss to the Seattle Mariners at Oriole Park at Camden Yards in Game 1 of a three-game series. So on Monday night, the O's won at the Boston Red Sox 10-0, and on Tuesday night, the O's lost at home to the Mariners 10-0. Uh, quite the 180. Uh, the O's this season now we're 21 and 30. So the O's on Tuesday night went with an opener strategy, and the results, shall we say, were not so good. Uh, reliever Brian Baker began the game 
for the O's. He allowed three runs in one into third innings. He was relieved by Zach Lowther, who made his 2022 Major League regular season debut for the O's, but he allowed six runs, five earned in five into third innings. So the O's took Lowther with the number 74 pick in the 2017 MLB draft at Xavier. He pitched for the O's some last season. Did not do well overall. 10 games, including six starts, 29 and two-thirds innings ERA of 667. Remember, the Orioles pitching staff remains pretty banged up, and so the O's lately have had to do things like go with a bullpen game and on Tuesday night uh, go with an opener game. Uh, Things were so bad for the O's on Tuesday night from a pitching perspective that a position player pitched. Yes, we had that on display on Tuesday night. Uh, O's second baseman Chris Owings pitched for the O's in the top of the ninth inning. He allowed a run uh, in that top of the ninth on two doubles. Uh, The Orioles' offense on Tuesday night was bad, too. No runs, just five hits, which were a double and four singles. The O's worked just one walk, went 0 for 3 with runners in scoring position. Adley Rutschman had another rough game. Uh, He is the Orioles' starting catcher and number five batter, went 0 for 4 with three strikeouts and left five men on base. Uh, Rutschman's OPS now at the major league level is a mere 529. Of course, you got to give him time. Of course, you can't be freaking out. I mean, the guy's totaled just 44 major league plate appearances, but clearly uh, the initial results for Adley Rutschman at the major league level have not been great, at least not yet. Uh, Cedric Mullins continues to struggle as well. He on Tuesday night as the Orioles starting center fielder, a number one batter, 0 for 4. Mullins OPS for the season now is just 662. Uh, Mullins by far has been the Orioles' biggest offensive disappointment so far this season. I mean, he was so good for the O's last season. Mullins in the 2021 season was tremendous. OPS of 878, a wins above replacement for baseball reference of 5.7. I mean, he was a low-key American League MVP candidate for last season. Uh, He has not been close to that player so far this season. But speaking of war, here's something positive. Orioles shortstop Jorge Mateo entering games on Tuesday was number one in the majors in defensive war for baseball reference at 1.2. How about that? Uh, Jorge Mateo is not having a good offensive season, but defensively, he has been excellent. Mateo also entered games on Tuesday, tied for first among all players in the majors this season in defensive runs saved at nine. Uh, Just outstanding. Game two for the O's against the Mariners at Oriole Park at Camden Yards is on Wednesday night at 7.05. Kyle Bradish will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Thursday show, episode 327, it will feature a lot on the commanders of Wednesday's OTA practice, which will be open to the media. We expect a number of post-practice press conferences, so we'll have a lot to talk about. Uh, Also, we'll talk Nationals and Orioles. Game three for the Nats at the National League East leading New York Mets is on Wednesday afternoon at 1.10. Game two for the O's against the Seattle Mariners at Oriole Park at Camden Yards is on Wednesday night at 7.05. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and I'll talk to you on Thursday. Step off, George. I don't want to see you. Me? Step off? Yeah. Tony says you better step off, George. Oh, Tony, don't. Okay. (laughs) Step off, George, okay? Can you just step off? I I just... Step off. Step off. Step off.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.